It's Monday. It's morning. It's macabre. Welcome back to the welcome. You know, it's macabre. <laughs> Good at it. <laughs> welcome back to Monday morning macabre. All you maca boys and maca girl. Mac. That sounds like we're saying maga boys and maca girls, which would be way different. Uh, the maca boys, maca boys, maca ladies, maca ladies, maca boys, macaronis, macaronis, macaronis. Welcome hey. back to Monday Morning Macabre, the show where we talk about spooky, scary stuff. Yes. And we do so in the scariest manner possible. Whatever the good folks at Sling and Dingers Audio will let us get away with. Yeah, we, we, we're we trying to get past those sensors, but boy, is it tough. Yeah, uh, that board is. Whew. We're here in our volcano headquarters. We've just got another spooky, scary tale <laughs> coming through the machine. Yep. And I'm going to be presenting it tonight. Present it. It's me, Dars. I'm here with Scones. We should probably say that. I'm Scones. <laughs> He's Scones. I'm Darcy. And uh, I will be listening intently to what entails. And I will be speaking intently at your listening ears. My ears. And I hope you all enjoy today's episode because Scones, last Dars. time. <laughs> scones, Dars. <laughs> last time, you know, we went, we've been all across the globe. We've we've really we've gone all across mostly America, but some of the globe. The traveling has not been easy. But today, we're going down under, down under to meet some kangaroos and Whoa. some <laughs> koalas, Whoa. and crocodiles. Whoa. And their toilet spin the other way. Yeah, their toilet spin the other other way. We're gonna boomerang down we'll talk there. Talk to me, member of parliament. Because today we're talking about the Summerton Man. The Summerton Man? Also known as Taman Shud. Taman Shud. Taman Shud. Taman Shud. You know what? Taman Shud. <laughs> Taman Shud just Taman, do it. Just Taman ask Taman has let his fear hold him back for oh too long. Oh my God. He's Taman Shud. He should just do it. Rooting for you, Taman. So, have you ever heard of the Summerton Man? The Summerton Man? Or Taman Shud? I went to college with the Summerton Man. So, this is a wild, wild mystery about a corpse on a beach. Ooh, oh, just getting tan. Starts with a corpse on a beach, and it just unravels from there into some crazy stuff that happens. Oh, man. This, that You literally just described the plot to Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. It is real-life Twin Peaks. There's conspiracy. There's mystery. There's death. There's It's all macabre. Good, because that's what they come here for. And this Monday morning, we're bringing it to you. Let's get into it. Cue the music. So, the live band that's in here is really good. They yeah, do yeah, our- it's, it's, a lot of people think it's a recording of audio, but it's really our live band in studio yeah. performing identically each time. That's how good they are. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's great. Cheers so- to you guys. Don't get on mic. <laughs> it's not about you. Yeah, you're here to play music. Okay, so we're traveling back in time to November 30th, 1948. <gasps> the world is recovering. It's 7 a.m. on a warm Tuesday. John Bain Lyons and his wife went for a stroll in Summerton. John Bangs Lyons? John Bangs Lyons and his Whoa. wife? That's what I mean. T- Tamon, you, John's out here. <laughs> Tamon, you're going to be like John. Come on, Jen. I'm getting, the, I should say that 
This is coming from the SmithsonianMagazine.com. So oh, it's like a reputable source. They have it's a really actually this is a really well made uh, report on this whole case. So they wouldn't to, lie. Shout out to the Smithsonian. So November thirtieth, nineteen forty eight, jeweler John Bain Lyons and his wife went for a stroll on Somerton Beach, a seaside resort a few miles south of Adelaide. As they walked toward Glenelg, they noticed a smartly dressed man lying on the sand, his head propped against a seawall. He was about 20 yards from them, legs outstretched, feet crossed. As the couple watched, the man extended his right arm upward and then let it fall back to the ground. Lyons thought he might be making a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. Half an hour later, another couple noticed the same man lying in the same position. Looking on from from above, the woman could see that he was immaculately dressed in a suit with smart new shoes polished to a mirror shine. Odd clothing for the beach. He was motionless. His left arm was splayed out on the sand. The couple decided that he was simply asleep. His face was surrounded by mosquitoes and joked, he must be dead to the world not to notice them. So they're walking by. They see this sharp dressed dude, like kind of flailing his arm a little bit with like mosquitoes all around him. And they're like, this dude is a He's having a way better night than John Bain Lyons is. Every girl loves a sharp-dressed man. Exactly. Especially if they're... Is that ZZ Top? Yes, that <laughs> is ZZ Top. So that's weird. So the guy, so he was alive when Lyons passed him. Yes, so that arm. night people are walking by and this dude just looks like a really super drunk guy, right? Yeah. And he's just like sitting against the edge of like a, a wall on the beach. Just pulling off a sick fit. Yeah, exactly. So... It was not until the next morning that it became obvious that the man was not so much dead to the world as actually dead. John Lyons, ret- <laughs> John Lyons returned from a morning swim to find some people clustered at the seawall where he had seen this, quote, drunk man the previous evening. Walking over, he saw a figure slumped in the same position, head resting on the seawall, feet crossed. Now, though, the body was cold. There were no marks of any sort of violence. A half-smoked cigarette was lying on the man's collar as though it had fallen from his mouth. So he was reaching for a cigarette. Uh, Potentially, yeah. But he is now just dead and there is no immediate... Nobody knows why he's dead. How old was the guy? The guy's like in his like mid... uh, I want to say mid-40s. Oh, okay. So too young to just die. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a really, really old guy who just kind of fall over and keel over on the beach. Chose a sweet place to die. Yeah. So, the Royal Adelaide Hospital gets the body three hours later. Dr. John Barclay Bennett put the time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m. and noted that the likely cause of death was heart failure, and he also added that he suspected poisoning. Poisoning? Yeah, so this is where some intrigue begins. All right. All right. Dear listeners. (laughs) All right, listeners. We got... uh... We got foul play at hand. We got some... The foulest of play, he's... So, buckle up. (laughs) So, the contents of the man's pockets were spread out on a table. Tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, two combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Kensitas. So, he had a box of cigarettes that was filled with more expensive cigarettes? Yeah, he had like a cigarette pack, but he had other cigarettes in them. That's weird. I, maybe he was like consolidating? I don't know. You must, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Not important to the I don't think it's that important. <laughs> He wasn't killed by yeah. someone very concerned the, with yeah. fake cigarette advertising. It was the Cigarette Company. Um, there was no wallet and no cash and no ID. Oh, intrigue. Yeah, Again, intrigue. Intrigue alert. <laughs> intrigue alert. None of the man's clothes bore any name tags. 
See the Joker. Yeah. It, so, <laughs> <laughs> in all but one case, the maker's label had been carefully snipped away. So, in all of his clothes, no name, all of the tags have been clipped. And one trouser pocket had been neatly prepared with an unusual variety of orange thread. So, they're like, this is super weird, but it's not like anything crazy yet. But it'll get, it'll get there. By the time a full autopsy was carried out a day later, the police had already exhausted their best leads as to the dead man's identity, and the results of the postmortem did little to enlighten them. It revealed that the corpse's pupils were smaller than normal and unusual, that a dribble of spittle had run down the side of the man's mouth as he lay, and that he was probably unable to swallow it. His spleen, meanwhile, was strikingly large and firm, about three times the normal size. What does this mean? The liver was distended with congested blood. In the man's stomach, pathologist John Dwyer found the remains of his last meal, a pasty. I don't know what that it's is. Like a like a like a, a a pastry, like a like a or a like a like a pop tart, like a fucking pop tart, like a fucking pop tart. So this dude like had a fucking pop tart. So it's like dies. a hostess type of thing. Uh, I don't think it's. I think it's more uh, toaster strudel. Sure, why not? Yeah, toaster strudel. How many more brands can we plug here? Yeah, so it's <laughs> it, the Pillsbury Doughboy rolled up to him, was like, like "You're gonna die, or I'm gonna kill you right now." <laughs> eat like, this. <laughs> he's like, "Tickle this, eat this, open your mouth." <laughs> so this guy was just like getting straight up poison, and he decided to lay down and just rip some heaters and all the sunset. <laughs> yeah, he's like, "All right, bro." <laughs> well, <We're> gonna- <laughs> fuck. Well, it's too late now. Let's big pastry got me. <laughs> Another death thanks to big pastry. Yeah, everyone's blaming cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) So there was nothing to show that the poison had been in the food. The dead man's peculiar behavior on the beach, slumping in a suit, raising and dropping his right arm, seemed less like drunkenness than it did a lethal dose of something taking slow effect. But repeated tests on both blood and organs by an expert chemist failed to reveal the faintest trace of poison. I was astounded that he found nothing, Dwyer admitted at the inquest. In fact, no cause of death was found. (laughs) This man's alive. <laughs> he they, just they gets, turn, yeah, he's, he's like, like he's like, hey guys, I got you good. Just ripping a crank in a hoon, <laughs> just sitting there. The body displayed other peculiarities. The dead man's calf muscles were high and very well developed, although in his late. Cause <laughs> <laughs> of death is box jumps. <laughs> yeah, so it's sick calves. <laughs> I love all the details of this case. Nothing are helpful. Nope. (laughs) So the man's in his late 40s. He has the legs of an athlete. His toes, meanwhile, were oddly wedge-shaped. So one expert gave evidence at the inquest and said, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscle so pronounced as this case. (laughs) This is my favorite case. (laughs) His feet were rather striking, suggesting this is my own assumption. That he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. Oh, so he, maybe he did drag or something? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to why he's got, why they're so, uh, talking about his cast so much. This dude was just like a foot fetish, like, doctor. And he's <laughs> like, I've never seen such specimens. I took pics and sold one eBay. Listen, from the knee down, <laughs> this guy's fucking healthy as a horse. <laughs> I'm guessing what killed him is above that. The police are like, what are you talking? No. <laughs> really, you're really focusing on every person's feet we bring you. <laughs> Look at these ankles. Flawless. <laughs> Perhaps another expert witness hazarded the dead man had been a ballet dancer. Ooh. Ooh. The mystery gets stranger. I love the idea of this guy like in life 
doing ballet and like being in a full leotard and then just going up behind the building to like smoke a cig in his leotard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a goddamn ballet. Some guy walks by. He's like, whoa, sick calves. And he's like, keep walking. That <laughs> oh, beer on my nose. Oh, no. The keep walking. Put it in my nose. Oh, fuck. <laughs> okay. Oh. So this leaves the coroner with a real puzzle on his hands. All right. The only practical solution, he was informed by the eminent professor, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks. Hicks is on the case? Yeah, we got Hicks on the case. It was a very rare poison had been used is the only thing they can come up with. One that decomposed very early after death, leaving no trace. The perfect crime. Right. The only poisons capable of this were so dangerous and deadly that Hicks would not say their names aloud in an open court. Wow. It's like, it's like like the... That's sick. It's literally like the death spell from Harry Potter where they're like, yeah. you, can't, <laughs> you can't say it, bro. <laughs> Instead, he passed a scrap of paper on which he had written the names of two possible candidates, Digitalis <laughs> and Strophanthin. It's... <laughs> I don't know. I pictured the note would be like dance check mark yes <laughs> check mark no calves question mark maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so strophanthin is a rare glycoside derived from the seeds of some African plants, and it was used by a Somali tribe to poison their arrows. That's cool. So more baffled than ever, now the police continue their investigation. A full set of fingerprints are taken from the man and circulated throughout Australia, then throughout the English-speaking world, and nobody could identify the guy. No one knows who he is. Wow. Unidentified. What no year trait. was this? Sorry. This is 1948. Wow. So not even like that long ago. Yeah. It wasn't like, it's not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's should, someone should have been able to at least been like, oh yeah, that's, that's Tom. He's the guy with the hot calves down yeah. the road. <laughs> Old Tommy box jokes. <laughs> People from all over Adelaide were escorted to the mortuary in hopes that they could give the corpse a name. Some thought they knew the man from photos published in the newspapers. Others were distraught relatives of missing persons, but nobody could recognize the body. Is there like fucked up shit like every other story we talk about where some dude in jail is like, yeah, I killed him. No. It's like, sir, you've been in jail for 15 years. No, you did not kill him. This is completely unsolved and Ooh. nobody has claimed to kill the man. Uh, but we'll people, get into why that is. People were like, I know him. And then they were like, oh, you do? And they're like, no. <laughs> well, no. They, and then they saw the body. They're like, oh, no, that ain't. That, oh, that, that guy is oh, who you're that, talking about? They were like, the guy I knew had dump calves. This guy's got like... <laughs> pristine grade I've never seen calves like this. This guy's ankles are looking like hot toddies to me, brother. So by January 11th, the South Australia... You check the Olympic Committee? Look at this guy. (laughs) They might know him. So they investigated and dismissed pretty much every lead they had. The investigation was now widened in an attempt to locate any abandoned personal possessions of the man, perhaps luggage that he might have left somewhere that might suggest uh, where he had come from. So they go to like all the hotels, dry cleaners, offices, railway stations for like miles around where the body was found. And they found something. On the 12th of January, detectives sent to the main railway station in Adelaide were shown a brown suitcase that had been deposited in the cloakroom there on November 30th. A clue, dear listener. A clue. <laughs> if you're a sleuthy boy or girl, we got cluesies. Someone's, someone's got a full corkboard going with string. <laughs> so the staff could remember nothing about the owner, and the case's contents were not much more revealing. The case did contain a reel of orange thread, identical to that used to repair the dead man's trousers, but painstaking care had been applied to remove practically every trace of the owner's identity. So all of the objects in the suitcase have been rid of tags or any kind of like. That's ri- wild. The, yeah, the orange string is pretty incriminating. Of right of whatever this indicative brief- of it being related to him because I feel like did people so no this is definitely it's like it's a string? very clear like yeah, connection. It's his. So 
The case bore no stickers or markings, and a label had been torn off from one side. The tags were missing from all but three items of clothing inside. These bore the name Keen or T. Keen, but it proved impossible to trace anyone with that name, and the police concluded that someone had purposely left them on knowing that the dead man's name was not Keen. So they're saying, why would they have? Why would he have clipped all the names on all these things, but obviously left three things like... yeah. So Some they think it's like clue. a red herring. Yeah, they think it's uh, they're trying to throw the trail off who the real maybe guy that's is. the killer. Right. So T. That's, Keen. That's what they're thinking. Is oh, or maybe that. So the remainder of the contents were equally inscrutable. There was a stencil kit used by the third officer of merchant ships responsible for stenciling off cargo. A table knife with a haft cut down. A coat stitched using a feather stitch known in Australia. A tailor identified the stitch work as American in origin, suggesting that the coat, and perhaps its wearer, had traveled during the war years. But the searches, war years? The war years. But searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country again produced no leads. So. How good were immigration records in 1940s Australia? I don't know. <laughs> Probably better <laughs> than they were in like 50 years prior, but not as good as they are today. <laughs> How's that for an answer? Educated guess. Yeah. <laughs> Very lukewarm. <laughs> So the police had brought in another expert, John Cleland, who was a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to re-examine the corpse and the dead man's possessions. So four months after the discovery of the body, Cleland's search produced a final piece of evidence, one that would prove to be the most baffling of all. Cleland, baffle us, Darcy. I'm about to baffle you, boys. Baffleboys.org. Baffle Cleland discovered a small pocket sewn into the waistband of the dead man's trousers. Previous examiners had missed it, and several accounts of the case had referred to it as a secret pocket. Carrying his dime bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a really embarrassing diary entry. <laughs> Inside, tightly rolled, was a minute, miniature scrap of paper, which when opened up proved to contain two words. Typeset in an elaborate printed script. The phrase read, to mom should. T-A-M-A-M-S-H-U-D. Tamam should. This is Two so words. cool. Yeah. All so, right. So let's go over. Let's run yeah, it let's back. Let's run it back. So for you, the listener, the listener who I care about so much. We need you to know we love you. We care about you guys. All right. So a man with fantastic <laughs> lower legs is found yes. dead on a beach. Okay. So clue number one. Amazing calves. Amazing calves. Great ankles. Cute toes. <laughs> He's found- clue number He's found dead on a beach. Clue number two. Size 8 to 11 shoe, I'd imagine. Yeah, his uh, his innards are, are, fa- are like are weird. Messed they're, up. All, they're all messed up. Yeah. His outers looking... looking He's got good outers. Good outers, bad innards. <laughs> um, Brown handbag left at a train station. Yeah, a briefcase left a at a briefcase train station. That has string... A bunch of stuff with all the tags cut off, except for tags left with the name, name Keen. T. T. Keen. Keen. Yes. And the string is was also found on the body. So they've connected that. And now after they bring in this pathologist, expert pathologist, he finds this the writing called Tamam Should in his pocket. Right? Right. So. We also have two witnesses, Tommy Lyons or whatever his name is. Yeah. We've got, well, yeah. Multiple people have now seen the body. Saw him found. alive. Though. Yes. Correct. And then he probably died like almost immediately after. Correct. Okay. So that's the facts. That's the facts. Here we go. Let's <laughs> let's dive into these deep doggone theories. So Frank Kennedy, a police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, recognized the words as Persian and telephoned the police to suggest they could obtain a copy of a book of poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. 
All right. Okay. So say that again. All right. So there's this guy, there's a police reporter working for a, a newspaper. His name's Frank Kennedy. And he recognizes the words Tamam should. He goes, that's Persian. That's from a book called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Of course. Who okay. hasn't? So this work written in the 12th century had become popular in Australia during the war years in a much loved translation by Edward Fitzgerald. Old Daddy Fitz. It existed in numerous editions, but the usual intricate police inquiries to libraries, publishers and bookshops failed to find one that matched the fancy type. So the letter that is in his pocket has like fancy font that's like not standard. Okay. So you think it was like ripped out of a book? Yes, that's the thought. Oh, so. It was possible to say that the words Tamam should or Tamam should, either it's like shut or should, but he should, did come from Kayem's romantic reflections on life and mortality. That's the book that he's talking about. They were, in fact, the last words in most English translations. So it's usually the, it was like the last words left in these, in this book, right? That was written that all these publications of the book, this is the last like sentence of the book. And the phrase means it is ended. How fucking poetic. <laughs> yeah. So they find that out and they go, they, if you take it at face value, it suggests that the death is suicide because that seems very kind of like a thing you would, you know, like it is ended. Yeah. Like, that kind you know, of drama. <clears throat> right. Especially in a hidden pocket. Right. So, so it's not like someone snuck it in there. Yes. So the South Australian police never turned the inquiries into a full-blown murder investigation because they were like, well, it is kind of leaning towards a suicide right now. But the discovery took them no closer to identifying the dead man, and in the meantime, his body had begun to decompose. Arrangements were made for burial, but conscious that they were disposing of one of the few pieces of evidence they had, the police first had the corpse embalmed and a cast taken of the head and upper torso. So finally, we got some police who were like, hey, this could actually be a thing. (laughs) Hey, let's put effort into solving it. Right, so... Which is great. Good for you, Adelaide. Thank you, Southern Australian police. Have a Vegemite sandwich on me. So, after that, the body is buried, sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground. And as late as 1978, flowers would be found at odd intervals on the grave, but no one could ascertain who had left them there or why. So, right now... Pisses me off in an age where you can't set up a camera. (laughs) Yeah. So, they're like, okay, everything's said and done, right? This guy probably killed himself. That's probably the end of the story. It's a weird circumstance, but whatever. I don't know why you'd kill yourself with calves like that. Right. So, in July, eight full months after the investigation had begun, the search for the correct Rubaiyat produced results. That book? They, the, the book they were trying to find? Yeah. On the 23rd, a Glenelg man walked into the detective office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a strange story. Early the previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body, he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law in a car he kept parked a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law had found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor by the rear seats. Each man had silently assumed it belonged to each other, and the book had sat in the glove compartment ever since. Okay? That's weird. Right. So they both are in the same car. They find this book in the back seat, and they just both assume, like, the other person must have brought it. Was it, like, it like a convertible? How did the, how did the book get in the car? That's a question. So... Alerted by a newspaper article about the search, the two men had gone back to take a closer look. They found that the part of the final page had been torn out. Together with Kayam's final words, they go to the police. We got our book. So they find the book in their own, like in, (laughs) like a, it's, it's, he parks his car on this beach. Somebody threw this book into the car with the last page ripped out. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden things are getting weird. Yeah. Right. 
Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean takes a closer look at the book. Almost at once, he found a telephone number penciled on the rear cover. Using a magnifying glass, he dimly made out the faint impression of some other letters written in capitals underneath. Here, at least, was a solid clue to go on. Holy shit. So, the phone number was unlisted, but it proved to belong to a young nurse who lived in su- near Somerton Beach. Like the two Glenelg men, she had never been publicly identified. The South Australia police of 1949 were disappointingly willing to protect witnesses embarrassed to be linked to the case. So they're like, we're not going to let people know who Future you are. Future generations are yeah. not going to solve this. We're going to solve it or no one is. Right. So she's only now known by her nickname, which is Justine. Not Justine. Ooh. Justine. J-E-S-T-Y-N. Oh, I you said just steamy. No. <laughs> just, like, wow. She's known by Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Reluctantly, it seemed, the nurse admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to the man she had known during the war. She gave the detective his name, Alfred Boxel. At last, the police felt confident that they had solved the mystery. Boxel surely was the unknown man. Within days, they had traced his home to Maroubra, New South Wales. The problem was, Boxel turned out to still be alive, and he still had the copy (laughs) of the Rubaiyat that Justine had given him. It bore the nurse's inscription, but it was completely intact. So it's a a different book? Yes. So the scrap of paper must have come from elsewhere. So this this So the same book has same book, the same same thing ripped out, but does not equate to the same guy. (laughs) So we have these two people with the car have a book with the page ripped out and the nurse's number. Yep. They find the nurse. And this other guy also has a book with the nurse's number and the same thing ripped out. Correct. That so it's two books now. So yeah, there's two books. And no leads. Now, they do not continue to question Justine, apparently. However, they did get some information out of her. She recalled that sometime the previous year, which she could not be certain of the date, she had come home to be told by neighbors that an unknown man had called and asked for her. And when confronted with the cast of the dead man's face, Justine seemed completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint. (gasps) So they show her the body and she's like, like, she reacts like, holy shit, this is like, Someone, Someone I know. know. Right. She seemed to recognize the man, yet firmly denied that it's anyone she knew. She's so full of shit. Right. <laughs> That's the thing. She definitely killed him. Or she gave him medicine. Ooh, maybe the medicine killed him. Yeah, so we got all sorts of questions. So I got questions for this just steamy character. Now, Sergeant Leone had noticed that in the Glenel Grubayette, the one found in the car, that if he examined it under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen, the second of which had been crossed out, and the first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It seemed that they were some sort of code. So it's an encryption. That's what, yeah. It's a Oh, so we got to get the codex. Yeah. Breaking a code from only a small fragment of text is exceedingly difficult, but the police did their best. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, home of the finest cipher experts in Australia, and allowed the message to be published in the press. So we need the the key. Right. So this produces a, a frenzy of amateur code breakers, almost all of it not you know worthless and no one to get it. Isn't Alan anything. Turing still alive at this point? Get that guy <laughs> in the case. And then the Navy concludes that the code may be unbreakable. They said, from the manner in which the lines have been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate, in so far as it can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. 
The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with a table of frequencies of initial letters of words in English than with any other table. Accordingly, a reasonable explanation would be that the lines are initial letters of words or a verse of poetry or such like. So what that basically means, because that's a lot of words from the Navy. Sum it up, baby. Is that they're saying, we know that each individual line means something. We know that the letters are English. And we know that the code is probably in some kind of other source material. Like, you you know, it's like go to page X in the Bible and find, you know, this letter and you can break yeah. the code that way. So that's basically all so the intel they can gather. of a different source. Right. So that's basically all they can gather. And it's not the Bible? It's not the Bible. The police never crack the code or identify the old, the unknown man. And I assume Just, the obvious, they, this is probably obvious. Yeah. But I mean, it stands to be said, it's not the book itself that this code is inscribed in, is not the source material. Uh, yeah, correct. Correct. Okay. That is, yeah, they, that was something they tried and they could not figure it out. So that's like the end of the investigation. Fuck. Yes. Everyone's like, oh, let's they, get a corkboard going. <laughs> All however, right. in recent years, the Tamam Shud case has begun to attract new attention. Amateur sleuths have probed at the loose ends left by police, solving one or two minor mysteries, but often creating new ones in their stead. And two especially persistent investigators, retired Australian policeman Jerry Feltis, author of the only book published on the case, and Professor Derek Abbott at the University of Adelaide, have made particularly useful progress. Both freely admit they have not solved the mystery, but we're going to briefly look at the remaining puzzles and leading theories. Okay? So, okay. first, the man's identity remains unknown. It is generally presumed that he was known to Justine and may well have been the man who called to, at her apartment, but even if he was not, the nurse's shocked response when confronted with the body of the man was telling. Might the solution be found in her activities during World War II? Was she in the habit of presenting men friends with copies of the Rubaiyat? And men if friends? so, <laughs> male friends. And if so, might the dead man have been a former boyfriend or more, whom she did not wish to confess to knowing? Abbott's research certainly suggests as much as he traced Justine's identity and discovered that she had a son. A son. Yes. Minute analysis of the surviving photos of the unknown man and Justine's child revealing intriguing similarities. What do the son's calves look like? <laughs> Could the dead man have been the father? If so, could he have killed himself when told he could not see them? Now, I was doing some more research through other means, and there he. What's interesting about the Summerton man is he's got a thing. I can't remember what these are called, so I'm I'm not going to try. But he has a special trait about his ear that's only found in like a very small percentage of people, where his like his earlobe is smaller than the part like of the part of the top of his ear or something like, like that it's a, it's uh, a specific trait about the ear that is is very rare and the son of this nurse has the same exact thing okay so, so that's people sunny boy that gives people a lot of like credence to me and like that i we think they're related now this brings us to the final mystery. Going through the police file on case, Jerry Feltis stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence, a statement given in 1959 by a man who had been on Somerton Beach. There on the evening that the unknown man expired and walking towards the spot where his body was found, the witness saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, but he could not describe the man. At the time, this did not seem that mysterious. The witness assumed he had seen somebody carrying a drunken friend. Looked in the cold light of day, though, it raises questions. After all, none of the people who saw a man lying on the seafront earlier had noticed his face. Might he not have been the unknown man at all? Might the body found the next morning have been the one seen on the stranger's shoulder? And if so, 
Might this conceivably suggest that really this was a case involving spies and murder? He did an old body switcheroo? That's so... Or they did. All So they're saying maybe he was put there by someone else. Like someone could have murdered him. So this Russian spy theory is like, in my opinion, the number one, the one that makes yeah. the most sense to me. Dude's right? involved with some. This is all the evidence stuff. laid out thus far. Okay, I'm looking now, at the. I'm looking at the codes. There's. Yes. It's definitely. So letters. Yeah, we should. I'm gonna say what the codes are. So the first line is M R G O A B A B D. These are in all caps. The second line is M L I A O I, but it has been crossed out. The third line is N-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. Fourth line, M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C. And the fifth line is I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-5-T-G-A-B. So as you can tell, it's just a bunch of jumbled letters with a line crossed out that no code breaker could break. And there's like two lines then X through it in the middle. That is correct. No code breaker could break it until... Till Reddit. Thank God for I was doing research Reddit. and I came across there was an Is it gonna be like code? No, I know actually it was just it's an ask Reddit thread. The author Perfecting Loneliness. He writes, Can the internet solve a sixty three year old puzzle left behind by a dead man on an Australian beach? Top comment by Th- Feckin' Yes. <laughs> Allow me to. <laughs> so listen to this. Hit me hit Again. us hit it. Hit We're talking like a sixty-year-old, sixty-three-year-old code that has not been broken, and this is why I believe in the spy thing so much. This because is why I believe in Reddit, <laughs> because I'm very impressed with the code-breaking ability of this individual. I subscribe to this theory. He writes, "I believe I have cracked the code in the Omar Khayyam. It reads: first line, number one two four. Second line, it is a mistake and crossed out." Third line, I-O-R-S-N, Kaijo K-16. Fourth line, Nasir Beset C. Fifth line, soon open five question mark, Omer. So he goes on. Here's the explanation. Line one, number 124. This represents a numbered cable sent by Moscow to its Russian embassy in Canberra, Australia. Between the months of August and October 1948, the number fits in exactly with the Venona cables released on the net by America. So America had a counterintelligence operation going on called the Venona Project. They were basically listening into Russian messaging systems. Yeah. And they had labeled the cables as they found them or what have you. So he believes that that first line is referencing the cable that's going to be used for this communication. The number 124 for this Russian communication service. Okay. So the Russian codes in these cables were broken by the Americans and it remained a top secret that they had been broken for at least 20 years. So once the Americans found out about these codes, they're like, we can't tell people we need to keep listening so we can gather their you know, counterintelligence, right? So line number two, this was a mistake, crosses out. Line number three, which is I-O-R-S-N Kaijo 16. The IORSN stands for an independent online radio station network, and it is an acronym. Kaijo is the name given to Seoul in Korea in the early 1900s. When Japan took over Korea and renamed Seoul Kaijo, that was the name that the world used till about 1946. So before Seoul, Korea, it was called Kaijo. Now, basically, where he's getting all these letters and numbers from 
is that he broke the code enough to figure out which alphabetical letters correspond to which. So he's saying A equals E, B equals R, or 2, R equals U. And he, so he goes through all of these and he figures out the rearranging of these enough to get all this evidence. So the theory is with this second one is that this Kaijo stuff is Russian slash Korean, North Korea and Russia spy messaging. The fourth line he believes is a Russian code word dedicated to possibly the Australian army intelligence. In 1948, an Australian Russian communist spy ringleader by the name of Walter Sneddon Clayton had managed to infiltrate and recruit from many Australian government departments dozen of communist spies. The departments were leaking like sieves. Clayton was also involved with communist-controlled unions and with some people working for the then CSIRO in Sydney. One, a communist by the name of Wilbur Christensen, was the world's leading radio physicist. Clayton was reported as saying that Christensen was working on a special project for the Communist Party and doing a good job of it. So they had found that there was infiltration into the Australian like army of communist spies and that they were setting up an internal radio station, an internal like radio program inside of Australia to send these communications. Yeah. And he's saying that the third line basically is a code word for the Australian army intelligence. And he goes on to give huge amounts of details that I, we just don't have time for, but yeah, so, but we'll definitely link it and you should read into it. Cause this sounds like it holds water. Yes. So sounds like the individual was a Russian spy who took probably a capsule of some sort to poison himself. I was going to say he definitely yep. bit the, bit the capsule. And therefore that's why nobody could figure this out for so long. But I just found this whole thing like insane with all of the different like it's like a classic American spy tale with this dead guys so on sick. beaches. And it you can literally research this for so long because yeah. it's like there's so many different aspects. So open ended. Yeah, it's really, really, really cool. That's so cool, dude. I want to get into code like. Yeah, like cypher breaking and stuff. Right. We should only communicate that way from now on. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. This podcast is gonna become completely cipher based. So we're just That'd gonna be, be like, we're just gonna say nonsense. Yeah, PJ like, K- <laughs> seven. It's just a number channel. <laughs> we're back. Yeah, we're gonna make a number station. <laughs> so, if you find a dead guy on the beach, he he might be a spy. In Tinker Australia. Taylor Soldier, beach? dead beach guy, dead beach guy. Please look into it. It's super interesting. Dope calves. Dope calves. I don't want to make this episode too long, so... That's so cool, though. So, yeah, it's it's nuts. Like, it's so sick. Poisoning, dead bodies, spy, intrigue, it's got it all. It's all you Go want. Go into it. Band, play us out. Thank you for listening to Monday Morning Macabre. Follow us on our Twitter at MMMacabrePod, Instagram Monday Morning Macabre. Keep sending in suggestions and visit our website, www.mondaymorningmacabre.com. We like will, and subscribe. We will put up the link for the Reddit thread and also the Smithsonian article on this event. If you have any theories, send them in. I would love yeah, if that would Monday be, Morning Macabre solved this. I would love to do a... a listener ants like episode like really a mini cool. episode like answering what listeners think on some of these yeah. mysteries thank you 
Thank you. Thank you, and have a good Monday. Have a wonderful Monday. Bye. Bye. Thank you.